All right, well, thank you, Kevin, uh, and worship team, Greg and company. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. Uh, it's an honor to be with you and to see you online. Thank you for joining us. Um, I want to thank our interns, too, man, Megan, and there you are, Megan. Thank you. And Devin is hanging out back there. Um, they were a joy to be around, um, and as parents, you should just be thrilled with what God is doing in your children. Um, so, and I also want to give you just a wee bit of credit, too, because you helped shape them as well. But um, So we're really, um, you guys, Megan and Devin, did a tremendous job. I'm really honored to have spent the time with you guys, uh, for sure. So, hey, well, let me, let me ask you this question. Have you ever found yourself in an argument that all of a sudden you realize you can't really get out of without losing face? You ever been there? You've been like, shoot, I'm here, I can't back off, but this is going to be really weird if I do, but I don't want to lose this argument here with you. Let me put it this way. I, I read a story about a guy named Jason. He's 35 from New York. He put it this way. He said this, I got into a, a big fight with my wife once as I had dripped too much on the bathroom floor, and she was uncharacteristically annoyed about it because she walked in as I was drying off and expressed her annoyance with it. I always wiped the floor down, but that morning she came in before I could wipe it up. So she suggested I need to wait extra time in the tub or use the swimmer wipe down before exiting the shower. I said, that's insane. Air dry, baby. We both would not back down. And I believe I yelled, let me drip wherever I want. <laughs> Which is just an insane sentence to yell, he wrote. How about this one? Evan from New York wrote it this way. He said, every fight that I've ever had with a significant other has occurred in a grocery store. Something about the synthetic lighting and the stress of deciding what's ripe makes it a perfect place to disagree. He said, you'll be glad to hear that my wife has kept my grocery store fight streak alive. We once spent an entire shopping trip disagreeing about whether you could call clementines small oranges. I argued that the clementine is its own fruit. Her rejoinder was, when you say small oranges, people know what you're talking about. You don't have to call them clementines. Like all fights, I'm probably remembering it wrong, and she's going to email me the real version when this story comes out, he wrote. Or how about this one? With this one, I'll end here. Brianna from Iowa, she put it this way. She said, not too long ago, and this is great, my husband and I got into a fight because I refused to cut up his pork chops for him. No joke. He was on his way home from work and called me on the way to ask me about dinner. And when I told him I'd made pork chops, he said, oh, good. Will you cut them up for me so I can eat them fast? <laughs> my eyes nearly rolled into the back of my head, she said. Normally, I'm pretty accommodating, but cutting up a grown man's food for him while feeding, cleaning up after, etc., three kids was a bit much. I honestly figured he wouldn't mind that I didn't do it, but he was genuinely irritated. We fought about it for 15 minutes, and he spent the rest of the night giving me the silent treatment. Now, whenever he asks something that's coming close to the outrageous line, I ask him if he wants me to cut up his pork chops, too. <laughs> uh. Well, I don't know what your story would be, but I know in my life, I've got plenty of those where it's been like, man, I, I'm too far in, and now it's gotten silly, but I can't back off because I'm going to lose too. So, you've been there? <laughs> The, the problem with, with this, and, and I think you, you know this over time, is when you get into these moments, you kind of have a choice in front of you. And we don't ever think about it this way in the moment. We don't ever think about it this way. But later on, I think we can see that this principle is actually true. When you're in those moments, when you're arguing with somebody and there's something even trivial on the table, 
I'll put it this way for this morning. You can actually win an argument and lose your influence at the same time, right? I don't ever think about it that way, but it's true. I can win the argument and lose my influence in the same moment. You've heard it said you can win the battle and lose the war. This is the same idea. You can win an argument and lose your influence at the same time. And you've seen that in business. You've seen that in your personal relationships. And I might argue you might even have seen that in your faith. If you've ever known someone who's tried to argue somebody into the faith, only to see them shut down and say, well, thank you, okay, sure, I'm sure Jesus is real, but I don't really ever want to talk to you again because you're so belligerent. I mean, I've lost my influence, but sure, you've won the battle. Sure, that's fine, I'll give it to you. This, believe it or not, is such an important principle, it surprises me the importance of this principle because it shows up in a letter that Paul, an early follower of Jesus, was writing to people when he was facing impending death. He was in a dungeon, and he had just a few weeks to live, is our understanding. And one of the things that he communicated to, to Timothy and to the next generation of Christians, is he didn't know what would take place. This is before there was even really churches around. The Bible hadn't been put together like we had. This was in the very early stages of Christianity. This principle about how we handle ourselves when it comes tr to trying to win influence or win arguments, actually, is a core value of early Christianity that's so important that Paul decided that on my deathbed, basically, I'm going to write to future generations so they will know how important those moments are for the growth of the faith and for the growth of themselves. And so I want to take you to that in case you don't believe me. I want you to look at it yourself right from Paul's words. And so we're in the, the letter that Paul wrote to, Tim, to Timothy. We're in the second letter they wrote to Timothy, and therefore it's called 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2 is where we are in this series that we're calling Endure. And we're going to cover just about six verses this morning, verses 20 to 26. If you have a Bible with you, uh, just pull it out um, or pull it on your phone. If you don't own a Bible, there's one in the chair near you. We'd love to give that to you here this morning. Um, but we're gonna, I'm going to read through these verses, and I'm going to come back and comment on them, okay? And so I'm just going to read. Here's what Paul's saying. I'm reading from the New International Version. If your version is a little different, hopefully you can still follow along. So here's what's Paul, what Paul's writing. Again, he's actually in chains. He's in a dank, dark, um, carved out of the ground dungeon when he's writing this. And so it's a, not the best environment. He says this. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. It's a little confusing. I'm not sure what you mean. He goes on to clarify a little bit. Let's go in verse 22. He says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be or gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Now let's look at this section by section. The first couple of verses, 20 and 21, he talks about the, the large house. He says there's articles of gold and silver, but also wood and clay. Some are for special purposes, some for common use. 
This is a little confusing. What does he mean? Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes. Made holy, useful to the master, prepared to do any good work. This is kind of confusing. And commentators write about this and like, this is kind of weird. Is he talking about the future church where maybe let's take this room for a minute and say, well, in this room, do we have some people who are, who are common and some people who are uncommon? And maybe we should take a, you know, an entry and exit survey. And depending on how you score, we can label you as someone who's extraordinary and someone who's common. Like, what does he, what does he mean by that? Of course, that would be terrible and not at all what, what he's saying. He's, I believe, speaking more to the individual and my, my own approach to this personally and saying that in a home, and you have this in your home too, you have everyday plates, but some of you have special plates that if guests were to come, you'd actually to clean those and put them out. They'd be nicer. They still function the same way. And you actually, I would argue, need both. You need the plates that are just regular because you don't want to dirty and mess up and chink the, you know, the nice plates. But then you have the nice stuff. You know, the nice stuff that's in your home. And what he's saying is that in, in a home, just like in, I would say, our own lives, there are sometimes ways that we operate that are kind of daily and normal. But then there are moments, there are seasons, there are opportunities when we have a chance, if you will, to kind of stand out, to do something a little special. And what he gives us is freedom to make the choice to do that. Verse 21, he says, those who cleanse themselves, that's my job. Like, he's not saying this is what God will do for you. He's saying, Timothy, you take responsibility to cleanse yourself from the latter, from just being common in your usage. And what does that mean? He said, then you'll be made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. It's as if he's putting before Timothy an opportunity to say, you can kind of improve something here in your life. You can be someone who's set apart, who's made holy, who's been who can be useful to the master, and there's something that I want you to do for that. Now, I would still raise my hand and ask, Paul, what is the context in which you're talking about? What do you want me to do with that? Which is where I think the next few verses come into play. And I would argue that what is in Paul's mind is that he knows he's going to make an argument against arguing. And what I think he's trying to say is, Timothy, you have an opportunity to cleanse yourself from the way that the world operates when it comes to fighting, arguing, and even trying to gain influence. That there's a common way to do it that everybody does. They pick sides. They create sides. There's a hero and there's a villain. And we're going to put you on that side, and I'm usually going to be on the good side, and you're on the bad side. It's so, so common. It's so common. But you have an opportunity, Timothy, to cleanse yourself from the way the world thinks, to set yourself apart, to be made holy and useful for the master. You can be an influence in the kingdom of God in a way that is unique, that stands out, because it's so common to argue your way into influence. But you know that you can win an argument and lose your influence in the same moment. And this is where he goes in verse 22. He says, flee the evil desires of youth. Now, he doesn't clarify what that is exactly. He doesn't put comma. Here's what I mean by the evil desires, Timothy, in case someone later is asking the question. He doesn't actually clarify that. In the New Testament, often that is referred to as like sexual immorality. But it simply, I don't think, is the case here. I don't think that's what he's talking about. The only way I get clarity on this is if I keep reading. He says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And then verse 23 goes with verse 22, and I'll tell you why in a second. 
He says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. I wasn't allowed to say the word stupid in church, by the way, when I was younger, so it feels bad still saying that right now, but it's in the Bible, okay? Uh, it's in the Bible. So I would encourage you children not to say that word, especially if your parents don't want you to say that, but here's Paul making this case, that this is, this is so ridiculous that he's going to call this a stupid argument, okay? All right, I'll let your parents handle that one from here on out, kids. Okay, here's why 22 and 23 go together. There are three imperatives. That's, that's a, a, a verb that is meant to be a command kind of verb that, that Paul uses, and they're flee, pursue, and avoid. He says, flee the evil desires of youth. That's the first thing he wants you to do. He's like, here's what I want you to do. Flee it, flee it, flee it. Imperatives, by the way, command words are words in which the, the text or the writing hangs. They're the central ideas. And so when Paul is writing, he's like, if you want to bring this down to the bottom, here's what, here's what I want you to do. I want you to flee, I want you to pursue, and I want you to avoid. Flee, pursue, avoid. Flee, pursue, avoid. Flee, pursue, avoid. I want you to flee the evil desires of youth. And the only way that you can understand what that is is by pursuing what these desires are not. And so he gives us, in a positive way, a definition of what these desires are not. He said, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with all who call to the Lord out of a pure heart. So he's like, I want you to pursue these things, meaning, by implication, these are not present in youth. Now, not all youth. I'm not making a judgment if you consider yourself youth, but I am saying what Paul is making the case for is that there are desires in, this, in the age of youth that simply do not fit this righteousness, faith, love, peace category. And then he says, avoid or don't have anything to do specifically with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. Here's what I think about this. I think what he's saying is that there's in youth, there is knowledge that hasn't yet met wisdom. In youth, there is power and strength that has yet to learn how to control it. In youth, there is insight. You're quick to see something, but it has yet to meet discernment about how best to speak about it. And over and over again, I think for all of us, and here's the test for me, if you could look back in your own life 10 years ago, no matter how old you are now, if you could look back 10 years, would you ever say, I could have done that one different? Yep. Could have had a different conversation with her. Yep. Could have made a different decision in how I led there. Because if you can, then what you're proving is Paul's point is that when we are younger, whatever that er is, that could be 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 for you, that it is the gift of age and experience that gives us wisdom to pair with our knowledge, that gives us control to pair with our power, that gives us discernment to pair with our insight. And he's saying, I want you to flee those impulses of youth where you just, you know what's right, you're strong enough to execute it, and you go make it happen. And he's saying, flee that, pursue something else, and I want you to avoid the arguments that come. I want you to avoid that. I want you to avoid foolish and stupid arguments. Why? He goes on to explain why, because it's not just about let me say this quick. It's not just about Paul wanting Timothy to be a good guy. He doesn't want Timothy just to die and have everyone show up at his funeral and be like, I liked him. 
Look at all these people who liked me. It's not just that. It's because he knows that Timothy is kind of projecting or shining a light unto God himself, and the future of Christianity's influence is going to be bound up in how people who claim to be Christian navigate their influence. And if Timothy is going to try to influence by arguing his way against the opposition, he's trying to take too much control and power on him and isn't trusting God enough to lead that charge, which is why he says in verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be. Now, imagine there's a fill in the blank and imagine you live only in this world. <laughs> Opponents must be what in our world? Crushed. <laughs> Opponents must be won over. Opponents must be vilified. Opponents must be put in their place. But he says, for Christians, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Don't miss who does the action. He's saying, I want you to gently instruct those who believe differently about who God is and how he works in this world. I want you to gently instruct so that God, not you, so that God can bring them to repentance. God will grant them repentance. This isn't about you, Timothy. It's not about you, future Christian, being the one to do this. It's about you having enough character so that you don't turn off the person from hearing God's voice to lead them into his family. It's about how you carry yourself so you can gently instruct and not be quarrelsome so that God's spirit can work, and it's a drawing influence to say, that person doesn't agree with me at all, but they were kind. What if God is kind? What if God is faithful in the middle of this. And then he goes on, and that they may come to their senses, verse 26, and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Now, here's what I think is going on here, that I'm going to categorize the way the world thinks um, outside of God's um, mind and, and, and God's kingdom as a, as a uh, a way of seeing the world that is very binary, uh, very right and wrong, black and white, uh, true or false. Um, that there are, again, heroes, there are villains, there are people who are good, there are people who are bad. And generally, we have to bolster our side and ruin your side, generally, in order to get after our point. And, and what Paul is calling that is a trap. He's calling that the devil's trap, of seeing, seeing that and saying, That's, those are youthful desires, to make it that simple. See, there's something more here. And I want to make this very, very practical for us this morning because I think this is the world that we live in right, right now. And we just heard from interns this morning, and I think this is the world that they're going into and our young people are going into. And so I wanted to share with you just a couple of stories about some people who are engaging the world and trying to win influence for Christianity in a way that I think is winsome and thoughtful. And so I just wanted to share a couple of these stories with you real quick because I think they're doing a, a great job and I hope it inspires you. One is by, from the author Tish Harrison Warren. I don't know if you've heard of her before, but here's the deal. Uh, Warren was at Vanderbilt University in 2011 
and they were told that their campus ministry was going to be basically uh, in jeopardy. They had either to drop the requirement that student leaders affirm their doctrinal position, or they would not be allowed to be on campus. And the reason for that is that during the previous school year, one student claimed that he was kicked out of his Christian fraternity for being gay. Vanderbilt responded by forbidding any belief standards for those wanting to join or lead any campus group. And so their group welcomed anyone but leaders had to sign a doctrinal statement. And so this conflict, I don't know if you knew, remember this 10 years ago, this conflict at Vanderbilt actually expanded and the national media came in with confusion and distortion. It wasn't clear what was really going on. And the conflict became an easy target for either or argumentation. Depending on how you saw this, there are two stories you could have taken, two narratives. One, this is either a story about a liberal, secular university oppressing the meek and mild Christians on campus, or it was about the bigoted and backward Christians getting their just desserts from the heroes of progress. Pick your side. Which one do you want to be on? Okay? So here's what Tish Warren had to say. This is where she kind of found her voice a little bit as she was... Uh, a growing author and writer. She was just starting to get into that field, and she had some people who asked her to write about this because she was just feeling that space. And here's what she wrote about that moment in her life. She said, and here was a small miracle that I found. The way that we used words shaped us. Our supervisor's admonition to use words charitably shaped how we felt about the university and its administration. It actually made us feel more charity toward those with whom we disagreed, and it changed our understanding of what was happening. It was not easy to articulate in writing our differences with the administration in a way that honored what was best about the university. It would have been much easier and much more attention-getting to write a scorched-earth takedown of liberal elites in the academy. Our more nuanced task was to disagree publicly and try, however fumbling and imperfectly, to use words and arguments that were truthful and yet humble and that respected the dignity of those with whom we were arguing. To be people who spoke and wrote with conviction, but who res resisted the short-lived sweetness of self-righteous vitriol. This task kept us up on our toes and forced us to lean into the tension of trying to maintain meaningful relationships with those who rejected us. We were trying, she said, to understand the best arguments of those with whom we deeply disagreed, and at the same time, to voice our own convictions unapologetically. We wanted to find an alternative to either a kumbaya get-alongism or a, a screed screeching militancy. So by taking up my supervisor's challenge, we found that we were able to see our ideological enemy more sympathetically, more like we see ourselves, human, fallible, valuable in the eyes of God. Our words changed our hearts, she wrote. Now, one would think that if you use words well enough, then maybe you can win your argument. Because don't I want to influence them to my side? And here's what Warren said was also true, and this I found very insightful. She said, but that year, I also bumped into the limit of words. I honestly believe that if I could make the right argument, quote the right authorities, change the narrative, challenge the categories, if I could write well enough, we could resolve our conflict. I thought that in the end, finding the right words could rescue us. You ever feel that way? But I discovered that no amount of winsomeness or intellectual rigor or cultural engagement or nuance would be sufficient to bring about reconciliation. Words are never in themselves salvific. They don't save. They cannot rescue us from misunderstanding or fear. 
They do not have the power to finally conquer our own propensity for smallness and selfishness, foolishness, or and short-sightedness. She said, as someone who loves words, even as I celebrate the beauty and the power that they hold, I'm often reminded that they falter and fail. Without words, we will not change culture, we will not understand our own lives, we will not fully be known, but words alone will never be sufficient for the task. And then she says something that I think Paul says. This sounds like Paul when she's writing here. She said, as Christians, we use words knowing they help us only to the extent that they lead us to truth and ultimately to the Word, capital W, meaning Jesus, who was before all words and who judges and redeems all things, even our own glorious and unruly, luminescent and limited little words. A writer saying, there's got to be a third way, a better way to engage. And my words will work not if I hope to win you, but if I hope to give to you in as winsome and charitable a way a way to see the truth, that God can do his work. Now, if you're not a writer or an author, maybe you're a musician, I don't know. Some of you guys have heard about, have heard of Lecrae, all right, Christian rapper. Here's what Lecrae had to say, same thing. He put it this way, he said, we, all, we tell stories to give meaning to otherwise messy situations and to reconcile in our minds what all the chaos means. We create heroes and villains to make a sense of our stories. Who will be the hero and who will be the villain? Lecrae, gave this example from 2014. Again, I want to be very feet on the ground, which is why I'm talking about these very particular stories. He said, the incidents in Ferguson, Missouri, following the 2014 killing of Michael Brown provide us an example. What happened there means something, Lecrae wrote, but what it means depends on the story being told. One narrative insists that the black community consists of good people with bad circumstances. The local police are bad people who abuse power. The black community must fight to show that black lives matter in this country and bring police to task. That gives many people meaning to what transpired in this St. Louis suburb. Another narrative is that the police are the heroes, doing the best they can in a dangerous profession. People like Mike Brown are the villains who break the law and face the unfortunate consequences of their actions. We can't allow race to blind us from seeing that crime is crime, and the justice system will ultimately work to show what really happened. Both, he says, of the aforementioned examples have different protagonists and antagonists. Different good guys, different bad guys. It's as if, it's as if no one can see the events transpiring in Missouri without a narrative that allows it to make sense. And what's more, we have trouble digesting a narrative that doesn't fit our worldview. It's actually easier for us to believe a false narrative that fits our outlook on the world than a true narrative that shakes and shapens our perspective. And that is true regardless of where we stand. And then he does, I think, what Paul does. He gives us another way. He puts it this way. However, a Christian worldview marked by the biblical storyline stands apart from the ordinary conventional storylines. It's almost as if he's saying there's a one way, this way, but there's a third way. Here's what he says. It shows that in the grand scheme, and I love how he puts this, in the grand scheme, we are all guilty. We are all villains, the bad guys. The true evil is sin showing its face through broken humanity, and it touches every one of us. The one true hero is Jesus and his power to restore broken hearts and repair the infrastructures corrupted by sin. As he puts it, and I'll finish with this, he said, sin is the antagonist, and Jesus, he says, is the protagonist. And this is what Paul is saying. 
He's saying, guys, as you seek to influence your world, Timothy, as you seek to influence your world, don't get involved in foolish and stupid arguments. But rather, gently instruct, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, with the hope that God will be the one to bring to repentance those who are in a trap of seeing the world in a different way, outside of the realm of how God has created this world to be. This world, by the way, the challenges that we have are only going to increase. John and Ozzy write, Tim Keller write it this way, the challenges, let me take uh, Megan Zimmerman and Devin Clummer who stood up here a few minutes ago, as they grow in there, they're going to outlive the majority of us in here, not all of us, but the majority. The challenges in this world are only likely to increase. Many of us will confront greater differences in our daily lives due to growing religious pluralism, the increase in non-believers, rising income inequality, migration to cities and other densely populated areas. Others will retreat further into our own enclaves and echo chambers. This latter challenge is particularly acute online. Unless we make deliberate efforts to the contrary, our own online experiences will increasingly be shaped by groups that either reinforce unchallenged beliefs, by curated feeds that manipulate our emotional presuppositions, and by stories and images that take us quite literally to alternate realities. This is the world that our interns get to navigate, get to lead us into. And so how do we function in this space, right? How do we function in this space? What does it look like for Christians to win influence and move people toward Christ in this space? And short of giving you principles, I just wanted to give you one last story. And with that, I'm going to need my, my aid. Here we go. Thank you, Jesus. We talked about it. Yeah, we talked about not throwing it too far. <laughs> Imagine you're a parent of, of, a, of a toddler, a couple toddlers, and you walk into a room because you hear the toddlers starting to yell at each other, right? They're starting to scream. And the reason is you walk in and one of them is holding on to this guy right here and the other one wants it. And so we have Johnny and Susie in the room and Johnny's holding the football and Susie wants it. Johnny will not share it, but Susie wants it for sure. Now, what's going on in the room? You have a couple of options. Depending upon the time that you have, you will do something. And I do not judge parenting in a vacuum like this. Sometimes you just do what needs to be done because you've got to go to the doctor's office or whatever. So don't hear any judgment. No judgment. No judgment. Okay. But there's a couple options. As a parent, sometimes you just you ask the question, well, who had it first? That's one question, right? You can also say, listen, we're gonna, I'm going to set a timer. You know, Johnny, you get it for 30 seconds, and Susie, you get it for 30 seconds or a minute, whatever. You know, make sure you share. Um, the other option is, listen, I've had enough. Give me, give me the bleep, 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 football. All right, you just kind of say it nicely. Give me the football, and you take it, and you walk out the room. Now, nobody gets the football, right? I mean, that's, those are some options. Now, again, no judgment. But also, the wise parent who actually has margin, I know most parents at that age don't have a ton of margin, but imagine you had some margin, you walked in, you were in a good mood. You would see, because you understand, you would, you would understand that what's actually going on in Johnny's heart is you've got a kid who's afraid and a kid who's angry. He is afraid because there's a limited resource in the room. He has it, and if he gives it to Susie, he may never get it back, and he's afraid of running out. And he's angry that Susie wants to take it from him, and he feels attacked. And so what you have to do as a parent is figure out how do I deal with kind of the third thing going on in the room, and that is the condition of little Johnny's heart. At the same time, you see in Susie, she actually feels the same thing, and I'm not sure why she's doing that. Well, the reason that she's getting angry, again, she sees a limited resource in the room. She's angry that she doesn't have it. She feels like he's stronger. She feels like she can never get it, and so she's going to fight for her own. And the wise parent will begin to speak to the heart of the child. Begin to talk to Johnny about, Johnny, can we, 
let's talk about this for a minute. Johnny, why do you think you don't want to share with Susan? Johnny, do you realize this is more about your sharing? Do you realize you're getting angry? Do you realize that, you know, it, it can be okay? It can be okay to allow Susie to do this. And let me explain to you what would happen, Johnny. In your own heart, if we all kept for ourselves the things that we had, and as a parent, you find your way through that to navigate kind of this third way to say, you know what, there's one resource in the room, and I can either say that Johnny's the hero, maybe he's the villain, or I can find what exists as a third way to say, let me take this moment to speak about the condition of the heart, to kind of shepherd these kids through this moment. And this, in a way, is what Paul is trying to say to us. In our world, we think there are limited ways to do things. We are sure that we're going to run out if we don't get our people in power. We aren't able to maintain what we want to maintain. If we lose control, if someone else gets it, and I have to share it for a little bit. I'm going to be in big trouble. And Paul is kind of coming in saying, be careful, Timothy. Don't start getting involved in foolish and stupid arguments. That's not how you're going to win influence. Because Paul knows, and you know this is true as well, what we said at the beginning. You can win an argument, or you can win influence, but you can't do both at the same time. And Christianity hung in the balance for Paul, which is why he pleaded with Timothy. He said, I want you to flee the youthful desires. I want you to pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. And I want you to avoid all of this foolishness, to see through all of the clutter and anger to what's really happening, that you as a Christian can influence with the kindness of your character, the gentleness of your words, the clarity of truth, that God can break people out of the trap of seeing the world as right and wrong, evil and good, and can find that there's a loving Heavenly Father who has made a third way. And that requires influence, not just a good arguer. Which is why Paul decided, of all the things I could write when I'm about to die, I'm going to write this. There are some things in the house for common purposes, some for noble. If you cleanse yourself of the common, you'll be of great use to the master for what is noble and what is right. The influence of Christianity hung in the balance. And I would argue it hangs in the balance in your life and in mine as well. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be here this morning and to get into this ancient text, hundreds of years old. We see great wisdom from what Paul wrote, and I pray that you would give us the courage not just to follow along the narrative of the world in which we live, but to follow the example of people like Tish Warren or Lecrae, who are finding ways to cut through the hero and villain narrative to present the truth of God in a compelling, influential way, not in an argumentative, youthful, selfish, unwise way. I pray that you would give us the wisdom as parents to build this into the hearts of our children. I pray that you give our young adults our young marrieds, our middle-aged wisdom as they navigate 
all of the challenges in this space, our business leaders, those in the sunset years of life, I pray that you would give us wisdom and courage to be able to set aside some of our own assumptions and presuppositions, to be people who seek influence, not just who seek to be right. We pray this in Jesus' name.